We go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are broadcasting, so to speak, from home, my home, because the church has no electricity or heat or water because we've had incredible amounts of snow uh, again and again and again and more going to be falling tonight and tomorrow. But anyway, God's gracious. And here we are. We are in the book of First Corinthians chapter seven is where we're going to be. Uh, we left off right around verse 25. Chapter 7 st- starts a section where Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians have sent him, um, sort of in an orderly fashion. And he's come to the whole subject of marriage, divorce, and covers pretty much every situation you can imagine. And an overarching principle here is that Paul wants them to stay in the situation they're in. The reason he keeps bringing that up is because some of them thought, well, maybe it's more spiritual to not be married, so maybe I should get a divorce, which is foolish, right, and ridiculous. So in any case, in verse 21, he says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. In other words, God can use anybody right where they are. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. For verse 22, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. In other words, it's a play on words. Even though he's still a slave, he's freed from sin. He's free in the things that matter. Similarly, the one who was free when called in Christ, called, sorry, is Christ's slave. Just a little kind of an ironic thing that if I'm a free man, when I came to faith in Christ, I pledged my allegiance to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Lord means boss, meaning I'm his servant now. So a very willing slave of the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, you were bought at a price or with a price. Do not become slaves of human beings and don't follow after human beings. We talked about all this last week. Brothers and sisters, verse 24, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. That's sort of the summary statement. He's even going to repeat that um, later on. There's no need to change our situation just because we came to Christ. Now, we said last week the exception to that is if you were in a sinful occupation, a thief, a hitman, a prostitute, drug dealer, whatever, obviously you need to change that situation. But in terms of marriage and what have you, um, stay in the situation you're in. God can use anybody anywhere. Verse 25, um, even though I can't hear you, so I know that you're awake, say amen. I see the waving and I see that amen sign. Beautiful. Okay, verse 26, uh, verse 25, sorry. This is a whole section about uh, virgins. Um, Let's see, now about verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Later on in this chapter, he's going to say, I don't have a command for the Lord on another subject. And he says, but I think I have the spirit of God. And of course, he's almost being a little facetious. Obviously, he does. He's writing scripture. So no command from the from the Lord. What that means is not that Paul's shooting from the hip, but what it means is Jesus never spoke on this issue. He spoke on a lot of issues. He's saying about this particular issue, which they had asked a question about, we'll get to that in a second. Um, he's giving his judgment by the Lord's mercy and by the Spirit, but Jesus didn't talk about it. Okay, so 
the question is obviously, as far as virgins go, um, should they remain virgins or should they marry? Uh, the word virgins is uh, neuter in the Greek, meaning it's male and female um, human beings. And there's only two genders, we like to say. The, uh, they are to remain in the situation where they're in, but he'll get to that. Um, okay, so let's read the, t- the verse uh, 26 and talk about it. Because of the present crisis, we'll come back to that. I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is, meaning... Uh, are you pledged to a woman? Verse 27, don't seek to be released. In other words, married or engaged. Um, let's see. Are you free from such uh, a commitment? Don't look for a wife. Okay, what's the present crisis? There was beginning to happen some major persecution uh, of Christians. And within the next 15 years, Nero would put to death and put people in, in uh, prisons. Uh, he burned Christians at the stake, just did horrible things, and it was already beginning. Because of that crisis, he's saying that it doesn't mean if you're engaged, you need to break it off, but it, he's suggesting that um, if you're uh, free from a commitment, verse 27, don't look for a wife. In other words, that's his advice. Is he saying it's wrong to marry? No, not at all. But in serving the Lord and with all of that stuff going on, he wants people to be as dedicated as they can be to the Lord. And when a man has a wife or a woman has a husband, let alone those with children, you sort of had a divided allegiance. And that's understandable. You love your family, you wanna provide for them, protect them. It could get more complicated if there was persecution. A single man could Uh, leave town immediately or go on a mission if he needed to much more easily than a married person could. So just because they have more freedom doesn't make it more spiritual or more independence, more spiritual, but it does make it easier, he's saying, in those kind of troubled times that they're living in. And by the way, we live in some troubled times right now. We hold values and morals. Yeah, I'm sure you've learned that our country, you know, the world doesn't like in terms of a lot of people, uh, the government, you know, social media. So um, there's a lot of hostility towards Christians. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, So it's certainly not a sin to marry. He's saying marriage is good. Being single is uh, even better if you have the gift of singleness, which we talked about last week. Some people have more of the gift of marriage. Uh, He's already talked about the fact in this chapter, he's talked about divorce from a married Christian who's married to an unbeliever. He's talked about um, uh, people that uh, are single. If they lack self-control, then they should find themselves a wife, you know, because of the sexual uh, temptations and what have you. So each has that gift from God. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, if you will. Um, So virgins because of the present crisis it's good for a man to remain as he is if he's pledged to a woman that's okay if you're free from that commitment don't look for a wife in these terrible times that they're in verse 28 but if you do marry you haven't sinned and if a virgin marries she has not sinned but those who marry will face many troubles in this life 
and I want to spare you this. Now, he's not saying marriage is bad. We said last week Paul was almost certainly married, and his wife either died uh, or much less likely left him. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, we learn he was because he voted against um, he voted against uh, Stephen and some other people uh, to persecute them. He had to have been a, a married man to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the ruling body, almost like the Supreme Court or the Congress of Israel. So it was a Pharisee that was elevated to that office. So he had to have been married. He's not down on marriage, but he's saying you're going to face many troubles in this life. Um, so it's just easier if you want to serve the Lord, if you can do it and you are single. It's interesting that in the requirements for the head of a church to be an elder or one of the leaders of a church, the first requirement is husband of one wife. It has to be a man, has to be somebody that's a married person for that. Um, so the, uh, verse 28 has the word, let's see what it is in NIV. Um, many troubles or pressures in this life. That's the word thalipsis in Greek, and it means a pressing together, a crushing, even uh, squeezing, like crushing grapes kind of thing. So uh, either way, you can please God, marrying or being single, according to what gift you have. It's easier to serve God if you're single in terms of you want to, Paul wants you to go with him and plant churches all around that part of the country. Um, you can serve God more freely if you're not uh, married with a family, but there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Let's move on. Uh, it's not a sin if a virgin marries. He's assuming that all young people, by the way, are virgins. That might not necessarily be the truth, certainly not in our generation, which is a shame, but he's assuming young people are supposed to be uh, virgins if they're unmarried. Uh, verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. The, that phrase in Greek could be translated, the time has been shortened. <clears throat> Excuse me. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. This is a strange section. We'll talk about it. Let me read the whole thing to give you the context. The time is short. Brothers and sisters, who is he talking to? Brothers and sisters, Christians. The time is short from now on. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, verse 30, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy, buy something, as if they, it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. That sort of sums up what that whole paragraph's about. Okay, but you must have questions as I did about verse 29. Okay, so Jesus told people, Matthew 24 and elsewhere, to be ready because his return was, you know, could happen and they needed to be ready, ready for persecution as well. So there are two ways that we need to be ready. And one is the second coming could happen. For those that believe the rapture occurs before that, that's what they would say this is, the rapture. The Jesus taking out of the earth believers suddenly um, and transforming them. Then seven-year tribulation, then Jesus returns. 
Most of you know, I believe that the second coming happens at the end of a seven year tribulation and the second coming is the rapture or the rapture is part of that, but we're not here to talk about that now. Anyway, be ready, anticipate his return. Um, but James 4.14 talks about our own, that our clock is ticking, so to speak. And the other way we need to be ready is because we don't know when, not only do we not know when Jesus will come back, we don't know when our own death will occur. There's no guarantee anybody can give you that, no, you're going to live 92 lot, years of life or 100. You never know. People die at all ages. So we need to be ready for that reason. Um, the context here is about earthly stuff is all passing away. This era will end and it's brief in the scheme of eternity. And that includes some really good things. He's not down on marriage, but he's saying that our priorities, and Jesus said the same thing, you can't love your wife or your husband or your parents or your kids more than you love God himself. He has to be the priority. So the time is short either from our death or for Jesus returning. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Okay, so the overall theme of this paragraph is hold lightly temporary, temporal, earthly things. That's what all these things are. You say, but the Mormons believe that people are married for life. Yes, I know they do, not scriptural. Jesus says in heaven, we won't be married or given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels. Well, does that mean I can't hang around with my husband or my wife in heaven? No, of course, if you absolutely can. Um, but marriage is a part of the world that we live in, which is a very short period of time compared to eternity. We're married here to avoid the lust problem, but also to procreate, to make families, which is God's basic unit of society, that the human family. So um, marriage suits us well here, right? It's not good for man to be alone. We, we have kids, we have family, but our God has designed us so that we would attach lightly to that and think more of eternity and the spiritual things and the priority of God in our lives. Uh, Colossians 3 says, set your affections on things above not things on the earth. So he's including marriage in that. Um, he doesn't mean don't act like you're a husband or a wife and don't have responsibilities. You do, it's a priority thing that he's trying to get across. Um, let's see, um, no giving in marriage is Matthew 22 verses 29 and 30, by the way, for those who wanna look that one up, that we'll be like the angels there. Um, We'll have, by the way, not a more shallow love, but a more deep love for everybody in heaven and for our Lord Jesus and God, the Father who will be there with us. Um, and we'll have a much bigger family, won't we, in heaven. Um, so let's look at this list again. That's the first one, earthly things. Um, uh, live as if they do not. In other words, make the priority of your life the Lord Jesus. Uh, and obeying him and learning about him and proclaiming the truth of his salvation. Verse 30, verse 30, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not. These are earthly and very temporary things because we will not mourn all crying, tears, pain, death, all of that is gone. We read that in uh, Revelation 
the last couple of chapters, right? So um, family is the wives thing and that those relationships can continue in heaven, but not in the same way, not procreating, not married, so to speak. Those who weep as though they didn't weep. In other words, why do we weep? Suffering, pain, sadness, all of that is a thing of the past in heaven. Those who rejoice as though they did not. That's earthly pleasure he's talking about because all of that will be gone. Believe me when I say we will be joyful 24 hours a day, seven days a week in heaven forever versus the very short time of life on earth. Those that buy as if they did not. In other words, those that buy things and think that they're theirs as if they were not theirs to keep. Why is that? Because they're not right? The only two eternal things that you see on a regular basis are people who will spend eternity either in heaven with the Lord or in hell outside of the presence of God forever. People are eternal biblically. What's the other eternal thing that we see on planet earth? It's not trees, grass, houses, you know, cars, watches, money, all of that's going to burn. The other eternal thing is the word of God. It'll never pass away. We will have the word in heaven. That and people. Everything else he's saying here, wives, even even families, ought to take second priority. Um, let's see. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, uh, NIV has. And he's right. Everything we think we own is on loan to us that God granted us to have. We're supposed to be good stewards of his stuff, time, talent, treasure, material goods as well. So that's what he's talking about there, possessions, because you can't take it with you. And then the next thing, those who use the things of the world, or literally it's use the world. This is human power right? That they can use the world, their connections, their, their position, their PhD that they have, all that's not going with you to heaven. So this is a paragraph all about priorities, as we said, as if not engrossed or, or so engaged in them. For this world, last part of verse 31, for this world in its present form is passing away. We're just passing through. We're James talks about us being a vapor, just like a mist here for a very short period of time. I like to use the analogy that when we get to heaven and we're there, the first 20 trillion years that we're there, we will look back on our times on earth, if we can remember them, and think that our whole life on planet earth was like four seconds in the second grade. September 3rd, when you were in the second grade that year, what do you remember about that day? very little. It happened so fast, right? That's how human life is. Um, so hu husbands are to forego some comforts and pleasures, but not the responsibilities. I meant to say that earlier. Um, so he's also talking about not what husbands are to give to their wives, because remember, this is the same Paul who wrote Ephesians 5, read it later, which gives the roles that wives are to play in marriage and husbands are to play. And for husbands, he says they're to love their wives just the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Husbands are to love their wives. So it's not what husbands are to give that he's talking about the priority thing. It's what we are to expect from them. A wife can never fulfill you the way Jesus Christ can. Um, Let's see. Yeah, we already talked about that. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives, not neglect them. Love them as the weaker vessel. That's from uh, Peter, one of Peter's books. So um, value things. This is a principle biblically. Value things according to how long they last. In other words, it's sort of like we're playing a game of Monopoly. Do you remember playing Monopoly? Took forever to play that game. And if you got all engrossed in the game, you're a fool because the game ended a long time ago. And you didn't really have those little mini $100 bills and $500 bills. They weren't really yours. Neither were the little green houses and the little red, even bigger red, um, hotels. It's all temporary. So temporal or temporary things ought to not interest us as much as the eternal things which are the things of God. Store up for yourself treasures on bank accounts. No, in heaven, where rust and moth and all that don't uh, destroy anything. The eternal takes precedence always over the earthly or the temporary. Going back to the text, are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, I know I am. Um, Yeah, verse 31, the things of the world, we already covered that. Uh, this world and its present form is passing away. Paul is very, very aware of the fact that there's only a limited amount of time, either in his own life or that the Lord could return. He wants to do as much good as he can and as much damage to Satan's kingdom, right? Verse 32. Now, let's see. I'm still reading notes. Yeah, nothing we have is ours. We're to be good stewards. Luke 16 talks about that. Um, Luke 16 talks about if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon, which is money, if you're not faithful with that stuff, who's going to entrust you with true riches, which are eternal in heaven? Um, We already talked about that. Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern, from worry. And I was going to give a couple examples. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. He's able to focus himself more on pleasing the Lord, how he can please the Lord. Verse 33, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. That's not bad. It's just divided interests. For those that have the gift of singleness, again, he's saying you can serve the Lord more fully, more full time if you don't have a wife if you don't have children, but it's certainly a great thing to be married and have children. How he can please his wife, verse 33, uh, and his interests, verse verse 34, are divided, naturally so. That's the way it is, right? An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord, sort of, in a sense, married to the Lord, right? In both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. All he's saying there is if you can have an undivided attention given to the Lord and his service uh, as a single person and don't lust, that happens earlier in chapter 7, then all the better. That's what he's saying. Um, Verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good. 
not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Remember, this is the guy who wrote, for me, Paul talking, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To the extent that each of us say, for me to live is, and then there's a whole list of things, that by, by nature that has to mean a divided allegiance, if you will, or a certainly divided amount of time. For most people, for me to live is my family, my work, my friends. Oh, and I go to church for a little while. Paul wants you to know the more time you can spend in service to the Lord, the happier you'll be. It's for your own good uh, and the better, but not to the exclusion of your responsibilities to your kids, your family, your friends, and all of that. Um, yeah, we talked about all of that. Uh, okay, let's go back to the text. Um, I'm saying this for your own good, verse 35, not to restrict you. If you want to get married, get married, but live in a right way with undivided of devotion to the Lord. The more undivided it can be, the better. Last thing, is there anything wrong with having possessions or a job, career, with having children or a wife? No, but all these things take away from the amount of time you can serve. That's all he's saying, but they're all important. Verse 36, is a very tough verse to translate. I'm going to read it a couple different ways. Verse 36. Uh, NI, NIV has, if anybody, by the way, there's two ways to take this verse, so you're going to hear differences in the translations. I'll tell you what the two ways are. I'll give you a clue about which one I think is right, but it could be either one. If anyone, this is NIV, if anyone, verse 36, is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he please, as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. Okay. NIV takes it to mean um, his virgin. That's literally it reads, if anyone thinks he's acting dishonorably toward his virgin. So does that mean, here's the two theories. It's the guy that's engaged. We're not married yet, but I'm starting to really have... Um, sexual desires that I don't know that I can control. I'm starting to realize I might be acting dishonorably toward my virgin, meaning my betrothed, my uh, fiance. It could be a woman, a man as well, if it's a woman feeling this way. Um, uh, okay, and new American standard, but if anyone thinks he's acting dishonorably toward his virgin, and if she is past her youth, and it ought to be so. Let him do what he wishes. He's not sinning. Let them marry. Okay, so sort of the same thing. But there are other translations and a lot of scholars that think what he's talking about here is not a guy that's engaged or a woman that's engaged. And the way I just explained it, there are those that think what he's talking about is a dad. And his virgin means his virgin daughter. Okay. Now, what do you mean acting dishonorably toward her? You mean there's some set of, no, no, nothing like that. Incest, no immorality. What he's talking about in this theory is um, he, the man, 
is of the opinion that the Corinthians were. They asked this question about virgins because they had thought maybe it's more spiritual not to be married. You can serve God better. So as a father, in those days, marriages were almost always arranged. The parents decided with some other parents, say, you have a son, we have a daughter. Let's have them marry. We like your son. We like you. And they say, yeah, it's a done deal in that culture. And as recently as a couple generations ago, my grandparents had a marriage that was arranged. And the the person getting married and the other person getting married had no say in that I don't really like him or her. Kind of strange, right? That's the way most of human history has been, not only in the Middle East, but all over the place. Uh, certainly true in Europe and a lot of other places. Okay, so the dad is preventing his virgin daughter from getting married. <clears throat> I want her to be sold out to Jesus, um, and that's acting dishonorably, he's saying, by preventing her from getting married. Um, she's past her youth, and it ought to be so. It's proper for her to be married. She's not nine years old or anything weird. She's of marrying age. He's not, he's not sinning. Let them marry. In other words, it's fine. If, if she wants to get married, it's fine for them to do so. Um, looking at the text again. Um, so uh, let's see. So it's either virgin daughter or it's, um, uh, or, or it could be both, both genders, virgin son too. Uh, the dad is preventing them from getting married, or it could be a person that's engaged that um, he's having inappropriate uh, emotions and feelings because they're not married. So um, tough to control their passions, better to marry. He kind of covered that earlier though. Um, I could go either way on this. I've read great scholars on both sides of it. Um, I kind of think uh, um, that it's the people that are engaged uh, answer, not the dad necessarily. Um, let's keep rolling. Um, verse 37, so the end of verse 36, he's not sinning. Uh, they should, they should get married. Verse 37, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. If he's made up his mind, no, I want to do what Paul said earlier that we discussed tonight. I want to be totally de dedicated to Jesus. I'm going to be celibate my whole life. There were eunuchs that were this way um, physiologically. There were people that were made eunuchs, castrated, so they could just serve kind of thing. Um, kind of a weird thing. It's not something we deal with that much in our culture. Most people get married because they fall in love with somebody, or think they do anyway, and not really arranged marriages, at least not in the U.S. anyway. Um, let's keep rolling. Um, verse 38. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Paul really is stuck on this issue that it's more spiritual, if you can do it, to stay single and just serve the Lord more fully. 
verse 39, he's going to cover one other reason that can end a marriage. Remember, we talked about divorce last week. The main biblical grounds for divorce is not, we're not getting along. It's not, he doesn't fulfill my needs or she doesn't make me happy. It's not, she's not a good cook. It's not, she's mean or he's mean. Certainly, if there's abuse, that's a whole nother thing, physical abuse for safety's sake, they need to at least separate. But the main biblical reason for divorce is adultery, immorality. The one person cheated on the spouse. If there can be reconciliation and forgiveness and total repentance on the part of the person that did that, then that's even better. That's the higher ground. But there's one other reason. Um, and that is death. He's about to talk about that. There's even a third reason, which he talked about earlier, but it's a very specialized case in chapter seven, um, where he talks about uh, a Christian who's married to an unbeliever. That's right around the middle of the chapter, verse um, 12, all the way down to verse 16 or so. Um, you can read that later. We talked about that last week. So he's covered all the other two married Christians. He's covered a Christian married to an unbeliever uh, about divorce. He's talked about engaged people or maybe the parents of virgins. Hard to say. But one other loose end. What about people whose spouse passes away? Verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. The two shall become one flesh. Right? Till death do us part. That's the ideal. But if her husband dies, I'm still in verse 39, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Don't marry an unbeliever thinking, I'll convert him, I'll convert her. You probably won't, and you'll create problems for yourself. So as long as he lives, if the husband dies, she's free to marry as she wishes, but has to be a believer. In my judgment, verse 40, she's happier if she stays as she is, meaning as a widow. Why? Because Paul is so intent on that. You can serve the Lord better that way. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. There's the phrase we talked about uh, earlier. So um, keep your finger here. Let's take a detour and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I want to show you something. We talked about it last week. I don't think we turned there, though. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So one book to the right. Go to chapter 6. Look at verse 14. If there's any question about that, can I marry an unbeliever? I really love him. I really love her. Yeah, I hear, I've heard this one too. I feel like God gave so-and-so to me. Yes, but she's not a believer. Yes, but I know it's from the Lord. That's a disobedience of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Well, we both like tennis and we both like the beach and we both like this music. And But the main things are the eternal things. Remember we said earlier that has to take precedence over the temporary, the temporal stuff. So um, go back and touch no unclean thing, he says in verse 17. Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter seven, and now we're about to dive into chapter eight. So chapter seven, cel celibacy, if you can do it, and you have the gift of singleness, 
Singleness is a great thing, Paul's saying. You can serve the Lord better. But if you want to get married, you certainly can, as long as it's a believer. Verse chapter one, um, we're going to dive in. I need to give you a brief introduction on chapter eight. Sorry, chapter eight. Okay, the Romans and the Greeks were polytheists. What does that mean? Uh, it's pagan. And what polytheists mean, poly means many, theists means gods. They had many gods, sometimes uncountable ones. They made up gods of everything, the God of sex, the God of wine, the God of food, the God of the harvest, the God of the moon, the God of the sun, the God of war. They had a God for everything. Okay, and there were many temples to these pagan gods, some more popular than others. I'm going to give you some names of them uh, in a little while. Um, but they also believed in, they were right on this one, evil spirits. Okay, we call them demons. We call the chief of the evil spirits Satan, right? But they believed in evil spirits. Now, they're wrong about the polytheism having many gods. There are three world religions that are mono one God theists religions, and they are Judaism, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. Christianity is monotheistic, one God. Christianity, um, this was revealed a little in the Old Testament, much more revealed in the New, sees God, presents God as one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are distinct. The Father loves the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Son returns to the Father after he dies on the cross and rises. And then he sends the Holy Spirit. The three are the one God, but they're eternally distinct. Uh, we've talked about the water analogy where a pot of water is on a stove. Water is H2O. What's in the pot? H2O, one thing. At a specific time, the heat has happened and the water starting to steam. What's in the pot? Water, which is a liquid, steam, which is a gas. Two things, but it's all H2O, one thing. At a specific moment when it's steaming and the steam is coming off, you put in a block of ice. Now you've got a solid, a liquid, and a gas, but they're all H2O. Is that a great analogy? No, because we're talking about the God of the universe, we can't fully understand it now, but we will. But it's the best anal analogy that I've heard. Okay, so the, they were polytheists, many different gods. And, but they also believe in evil, evil spirits. They believed that evil spirits could attach themselves to food, to animals. And so if you've got a cow or a lamb and you're going to have a big feast and you slaughter it, you should be pretty careful because maybe an evil spirit has gone into that lamb or that cow or chicken for that matter, and it's gonna contaminate you if you eat it. So they would take the food before they ate it, sacrifice, take it to the pagan priest at some one of these many temples. The pagan priest would sacrifice the, the animal and offer some to the pagan god. Okay, there was three places um, that the food went. Some was burned up to the pagan god. Some of it was given back to the people, the majority of it, back to the people. Okay, you can take your food now. We sacrifice it. That'll be this much money and you pay Visa or MasterCard. Just kidding. And the third part of it went to the priest who did the sacrificing. 
he couldn't possibly eat all the food that they sacrificed at that temple. So he would keep some for himself, but most of it would be sold. So you would, there would be a market at each pagan temple of food, meat, beef, lamb, whatever, that had been sacrificed to idols. It was cheaper than the meat at the market that wasn't sacrificed to idols. And so some people wanting a bargain would say, it doesn't really matter if the food sacrificed to an idol, I'm going to go get it at the discount place behind the pagan temple. And there were many of them. That's what's going on here. Let's see. But besides a market, pagan temples had feasts and they would have feasts using this meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's what chapter eight is mostly going to be wrong page about. So um, let me just look at my notes here. Um, so there's two sources of meat. You can buy it at the regular market. It's more expensive or at any of the pagan temples. They'll give you a deal because it's been sacrificed uh, already to some idol. Okay, so there's two types of Christians. Those who um, have a mature enough faith to understand that idols aren't really anything. You know, I don't care if your pagan god is Zeus or uh, Artemis or Diana or Baal or whoever. They're not real. I don't care if it's sacrificed to idols. I'm going to eat it. But there are others with that are new believers or they have weaker consciences, we're going to find out. And they're saying, oh, this is really hard for me to see my Christian brothers eating this stuff. Okay, that's the background. Um, let's see. Uh, and we're going to take a detour and go to Romans 14 at some point anyway. let's. We've introduced the subject. Um, last thing in this whole book of first Corinthians, but especially this chapter, watch how many times the word knowledge or know or known occurs. The reason is because the Greeks, the Corinthians really valued knowledge. He's so smart. He's got more knowledge than he does, or she does, or she has more knowledge than he does. And Paul's going to correct them that knowledge is great, but there's something much greater. Let's dive in. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. Now, if, you're, if you live in America, if you live in the West, you're already going, oh, I'm going to skip this whole chapter. This has no meaning for me. There's no food sacrificed to idols in our markets. In our, and you're right. But. There's a profound lesson. Don't tune out. This is an important chapter. Now about food sacrifice to idols. See, they had asked the question. He's answering questions. What about food sacrifice to idols? Now he's answering that question. I'm in the middle of verse one. We know that we all possess knowledge. There's that word. But knowledge, if it's by itself, puffs up. While love builds up. He's going to do a whole chapter on this meat sacrifice to idol thing. And he's going to say that love is way more important than knowledge. I'll show you why as we go in. But let's take our two minute break and stretch our aging bodies and go get a two minute snack, if you will. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be right back. Don't go away.
All right, we are back. Hopefully you can hear me. Find your seats again, if you will. And hopefully you got a good snack or at least stretched. Okay, I want you to notice, I gave you the background on this chapter. It's all about food sacrificed to idols. How do you know that? Because most of the chapter is, and look at the first verse. But I want you to notice he's not even going to get to that subject till verse four. But verses one, two, and three, he's really going to talk more about knowledge, which they thought was the most important thing, and he's going to correct them. Okay, we all know that we we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The thing about knowledge and getting PhDs or even knowing doctrine is very important in the Bible. But if that's all you've got and you're doing it to make yourself feel smarter than all these other people, all it's doing is puffing you up as a big windbag, as full of hot air kind of thing. Um, In any case, so we all possess knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of the gospel. I'll show you in a second. Um, And a basic knowledge of God. But knowledge by itself is just going to puff up while love builds up. And that's more valuable. Chapter 13 is all about the superiority of love. Go there really quickly with me. Chapter 13 of the same book, 1 Corinthians 13. Famous chapter. They read it at weddings, sometimes even at uh, funerals. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Just make a noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, this is all the knowledge. And all the knowledge, there it is. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, imagine that. But have not love, I am nothing. Well, how about generosity? Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, willing to die for the truth. But have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, verse 5. It's not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. So will tongues. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. Okay, that's all I wanted you to see for now. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with me. Um, We could spend a month, and we probably will, in chapter 13 when we get there. Just an incredible chapter. So go back to verse 1 of chapter 8. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. This is a paradox. This is a sort of an ironic statement. If you think that you know so much that you're a know-it-all, you actually have a lot to learn. The thing about knowledge is you can never get to where you know everything, because if you could, you'd be God, and you could say, move over, I'm coming on that thrown with you, right? So logic and knowledge by itself is a dangerous thing, and it's ineffective. Let me give you an example. Your child 
wakes up in the middle of the night, afraid of monsters in the closet or under the bed. Now you can logically come in and say, listen, I've checked the closet. There's no monsters. And I've checked under your bed. There's no monsters. Monsters don't exist. It's an illogical thing. Good night. Is the child comforted? No. But how about if you lay down next to him for 10 minutes and give him a hug and pray with him? That's love. Even though you know, that's just silly. Monsters don't exist. The monsters here are the food offered to idols. Is it a big deal to eat it or not? The truth is, it's not a big deal to eat it. But in love, you might not do so to keep a brother from or sister from stumbling. So um, the person who really knows truth knows how much he doesn't know, right? Don't you notice that about yourself? The more I know about God, the more I realize I know very, very little. Uh, We'll have all of eternity to learn about God, amen? So it's one thing to know doctrine and to be able to quote chapter 9 of John verse by verse from memory. That's all great. Don't get me wrong. But it's another thing to know God in a personal way, to know the fellowship with with believers, to know grace and love is a much higher uh, sort of a plane. Love is the test. Love builds up, knowledge puffs up. Verse two, those who think they know something do not know it as they ought to know. But verse three, whoever loves God is known. Notice no, no, no was in verse two, I think three times, right? Know something, no is they ought to know, yeah. But whoever loves God is known by God. What does that mean? The key is love, right? We ought to love one another. Yes, we get it. Yes, that's true. But that's the second most important love. The most important love is loving vertically, to love God. The more you get to know him and all he's done for you, you can't help but love him. When you love someone, do you know what you want to do? Please them. Now we're on the right track. But he's bringing up a specific thing here, and that is knowledge and love go together. You need both. Uh, Ephesians 4, I gave a sermon about this about three weeks ago, speaking the truth, knowledge, in love, right? Um, So, um, gosh, do we want to go there? No, not yet. Okay, let's keep reading. Whoever loves God is known by God. God, have you ever heard the song, God, he knows my name. God knows your name. God, folks, knows you better than you know yourself. Did you know that? That's a little scary if you know yourself at all, but he does. He knows you better than anyone, better than your spouse, your sister, your brother, your kids, your parents. God knows you better than anyone. And the shocking thing is he loves you anyway. He loves me anyway. Uh, I like Romans 12, 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So I want to camp on verse three for a second here. Um, Christians should not boast about their knowledge, what they know, but and not even about who they know that they know God, but that they're known by God, that God knows them. That's the result of loving 
God. Jesus in the Gospels, Luke 10, he sends his disciples out to spread the message about the kingdom of God. He gives them power to heal uh, and power over demons, even when they encounter demons, because they're spreading the gospel. Of course, the satanic forces want to come in big time. When they return to Jesus, they rejoice. This is Luke chapter 10, uh, middle of the chapter, right around verse 20. Uh, they rejoice that the we're so high and mighty that demons obeyed us. They commanded to mean demons to come out of some demon-possessed person, and it happened. Jesus says, Luke 10, 20, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you. Listen, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, rejoice that God knows you. Um, that's a much higher thing, right? Salvation is more important than or surpasses any diploma or PhD or award, worldly award you can get. Being known by God means the love of God has produced within us um, a, a knowledge of him and his knowledge of us, that there's a relationship there. Love takes priority over knowledge. Uh, we're known by God. That's a pretty amazing thing, I think. Um, so don't be too puffed up with your knowledge. Realize how much you don't know. Whoever loves God is known by God. It's reciprocal. God made the first move, by the way, in your love relationship with God. You did not come to him. He came to you. He drew you. Read John 6, 44. Okay. So now that he's covered love is more important than knowledge, He's going to apply that to this meat sacrifice to idols issue. We got plenty of time. Good. Verse four. So then about eating food sacrifice to idols. Okay. Point number one. We know that an idol, no, notice the word no. We have the knowledge that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. Stop right there. What he's saying is the different idols can have all kinds of uh, different names we named some of them earlier, Zeus, Diana, Apollo, Artemis, Baal, Molech, Hermes, Artemis. Um, but read that verse again. We know that an idol is nothing at all. He doesn't mean the, the um, stone or silver um, idol itself. He means the, the thing that the idol represents, that there's actually no god called zeus or apollo or diana or baal or molech they're not real gods they're made up they're nothing that's what he's saying they don't exist because there's no god but one we know the real god they're sacrificing to nothing okay now to be fair later and i will get to that verse paul's gonna say uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, that pagans, when they actually are sacrificing, there actually is demons, Satan, that receives that sacrifice and worship. But in terms of the different pagan gods, and there, are, there were a lot of them. Remember, in Hinduism, there's 330 million gods. All of them are fake. May I say, 
Biblically, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God. The Jews worship the true God. Christians worship the true God. Uh, Allah, who is worshiped in Islam, is not a real God. It's a made-up God. Man has the desire for God to such a degree that if he doesn't learn about the real God, he will invent his own. And the interesting thing is that God made man in his image, right? Genesis 1, 26, 25, right around there. The interesting thing is when men don't know the real God, they will invent a God in their own image. Because if I'm going to invent a God, he's going to be a lot like me. He'll understand me. He'll be okay with what I'm doing. That's not a real God. So he's saying food sacrifice to other gods, to idols. And idols, nothing. And there's no God but one. He's saying the believers that think they have the freedom to eat that, mood sac that food sacrifice to idols, they're right. There is no God but one. And all those things that are called gods are nothing. Watch verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, small g, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, people have different names for God on planet earth, yet for us, there's one God, verse 6, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, for whom we are. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live, we exist and have our being. Okay, he's distinguishing there between God the Father and Jesus. Does that mean Jesus is in God? No, the subject matter is God. To put Jesus in that same sentence would be total blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God. So that sentence, uh, verse 6, there's one God, and now he mentions two of the three personages of the Godhead. He doesn't mention the Spirit here, but there are many verses I could take you to where you could I could show you the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in the same verse because they're all God. Um, the Father, he talks about God the Father. Old Testament personal name, Yahweh or Jehovah. From whom all things came, okay? The creation, everything came from him. And for whom we live. We live for God. And there's but one Lord. That's kurios in Greek, the word that can mean sir, if it's just a polite greeting to somebody in the marketplace. But in a religious context, a spiritual context, when it speaks of kurios, it means God. Old Testament, it's, it's God the Father. Here, it's Lord, kurios, Jesus Christ. Jesus, fully man, but fully God as well. And he says about Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, through whom all things came. God created the world by using Jesus to do it. I'll show you that in a second. And through whom we live. Okay, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. Go to John chapter 1. If you don't uh, have time to, I can't find it, that's fine. But it's a couple books to the left. Three, actually. Past Romans, past Acts, go to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, Logos. And the Word was with God. Whoever this Word thing is, it was with God, and the Word was God. We find out in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, who came from the Father. He's talking about Jesus. 
Now go back to verse one of chapter one of John. In the beginning was the word. Christ already existed then. And the word was with God and the word was God. If the Trinity isn't true, that sentence makes no sense. Could I say to you, using these, the, the same analogy, um, yesterday I went to the supermarket and I was with Harold. You would understand that, right? I was with Harold. But what if I said, and I was Harold? Okay, that's time for like, you need psychological help, right? Not so with God. The word was with God. They're distinct beings. The word with is intimate face-to-face fellowship. The word was with God and the word was God. Um, Look at verse three. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is talking about the word, the logos. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now he's going to talk about John the Baptist. Go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him or made him known. He's talking about Jesus reveals God. Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Hopefully you're still awake. I won't ask because I can't hear you. Um, there's no God but one, even though there are so-called gods, that's all they are, they're fakes. There's one God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Well, that's obvious. There are people who are unbelievers who don't know this at all. But believers are supposed to know this. But he's saying not all believers have this knowledge yet. Some may be new Christians. Um, For whatever reason, they don't fully understand. They see these idols, uh, these false gods, as being somehow lesser gods, kind of a Mormon kind of a thing. They're not the top dog, the top god, but they're lesser gods. There's no other god except the real God. In the Bible, small g, you see them talk about Satan, the God, small g, of this world. Doesn't mean he's a God, it just means he is ruling the world because of sin temporarily. Just wanted to throw that in there. Um, Okay, Jesus Christ, sustainer of all, God over all. I don't have time. If you get the notes, you can look up uh, John 10.30 and Colossians 1.15-19, and the whole chapter of Hebrews 1 is all about the superiority of of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Same with Philippians 2. Okay, Um, so, but not everybody has this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols, I'm still in verse 7, that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it's been defiled. So this is a situation where... um, I have a dinner, we have a dinner party and we invite a bunch of couples over from the church. A couple of them are new believers. And I mention as I'm serving the roast beef, by the way, this, I got a great deal on this. It was sacrificed to some idol. I bought it at the back of the temple in their little marketplace. I know there's no such thing as that idol. It doesn't matter what we eat. That's not what defiles us. It's what comes out of our mouth, not what goes in. Mark says, Jesus says in the book of Mark, 
but there's people at the party who are new believers. This is really going to bother them. They came out of that pagan culture. They remember the sacrifices. And for them, this isn't right. And in the situation he's talking about, I know they feel that way, but I'm kind of flaunting my freedom, my liberty in Christ, my knowledge. Whether you have the knowledge or not, I don't care about that. Let me give you an analogy. Same dinner party. We invite a bunch of couples over and one couple, they're both ex-alcoholics. They can't be around alcohol. They have a real problem with alcohol. And I know this, but I feel like I can have a half a glass of wine if I want now. And then I have that freedom. It would be wrong for me in this analogy to bring out a bottle of wine and pour a glass of wine just to flaunt my freedom. If it's going to bother them, if it's going to hurt their faith, if it's going to make them feel guilty, it's better for me to just not do it. Romans 14 is all about this subject. Hopefully we'll get there tonight, but time is fleeting. Okay. I'm still in verse seven. Some are so accustomed to idols, they grew up in that pagan culture. So if they're going to eat that food, once I mentioned it was sacrificed to an idol, uh, their conscience is weak, it's defiled. They feel like they're sinning. And I'm causing them to sin. You say, but it really isn't a sin. To them, it's a sin. Romans 14 ends up saying, to the one who thinks it's a sin, to him it is a sin. Don't violate the conscience where you are in your Christian walk at that point. Okay, so um, their conscience is weak. It doesn't mean it's not working. It's overworking. They're so worried about this sin, even though you know it's not a sin, don't do it. Don't eat. Um, let's see. The free ones are right. They can certainly flaunt their freedom, but it's not right. It's more important to show love to the family of God. Love trumps knowledge. You're going to cause him to stumble over a disputable issue. Um, verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. God doesn't look at the kosher diet anymore that the Jews had to follow, and that's not what makes us holy. These are disputable issues. Let's turn real quickly, go to Romans. It's between 1 Corinthians and John. If you turned back to John, take, take a right at John and go past Acts and go to Romans chapter 14. We're just going to be here a second or two. Romans 14 is about the same subject. Accept him, verse 1, whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. In other words, gray areas. Not, I'm thinking of sleeping with some other woman instead of my wife. That's not a disputable area. That's a sin. I'm thinking of robbing a bank. That's a sin. Thinking of getting drunk. That's a sin. Disputable matters. One man's faith, verse 2, allows him to eat everything. He's a mature Christian. He knows God doesn't care what I eat. Another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I'm so paranoid about eating meat sacrificed to idols, I'm just going to eat vegetables. The man who eats everything, verse 3, must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God's accepted him. Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand or 
stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now he's going to talk about what day of the week. I've got a, a friend really telling me that I need to worship and keep the Jewish law, including the Sabbath. Okay. I don't believe that's true. I won't condemn him for that, but it's a legalism kind of a thing. One man, verse five, considers one day more sacred than another. You got to worship on the Sabbath. Another man considers every day alike. I can worship Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, whatever. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, verse five says. He who regards one day as special, great. He does it to the Lord. He who eats meat, eats it to the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains, doesn't eat the meat, does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God too. None of us lives to himself alone or dies to himself alone. We live to the Lord, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Um, okay, stop passing judgment, he says in verse 13. Uh, look at verse 14, I'm still in Romans 14, 14. As, uh, as one who is in the Lord, Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for them it is unclean. If your brother's distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. There it is. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Don't, died. Don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of of evil. Kingdom of God's not eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. Okay. Do what leads to peace, verse 19, and mutual edification. Okay. So don't cause your brother to stumble because you're so free. You think you can eat anything. If you know the guy has a problem with certain foods, just don't, don't eat them around them. Don't serve them. Um, okay, go back to 1 Corinthians 8, if you will. And food, verse 8, does not bring us nearer to God, right? What we eat is not a big deal to God. We're no worse if we don't eat, though. If you abstain, you're no worse. And you're no better if you do, just because you have the freedom to do it. Uh, we already talked about that. You're, you're not missing out on anything if you don't eat that food or do that thing. Okay. Mark chapter 7, verse 19. I got to go there really quickly. Mark 7, if you can turn there, do so. If not, just listen. We'll really be here a short time. Mark 7 verse 19. Uh, pick it up in verse 18. Jesus talking. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. The Jews had kosher food laws. You couldn't eat Pork, you couldn't eat dairy products that were touching a meat product. You couldn't wear cotton and wool at the same time because it was all a lesson about being separate. Jesus fulfilled the law. We don't have to live by that anymore. Christian liberty. Okay, so before we move on, let's bring it up to 21st century, okay? Let's say that you know that you have you know a Christian who believes it's a sin to go to the movies or it's a sin to drink alcohol like I said it's a sin to watch television 
If you have them over the house, don't turn the TV on. Even though you do watch TV, you're careful what you watch, of course, hopefully. Don't serve alcohol in front of that person by flaunting your knowledge. You're not showing love. Um, uh, so a stumbling block is an, a barrier to someone's faith. He might fall back into idolatry for that, uh, for that matter. But the thing he's going to get to in this passage, we may not get there tonight, but I think we will. The thing he's going to get to is it's not just eating it at the house. What was happening is Christians were going to pagan festivals at pagan temples, eating the food because I'm free in Christ and I can do that. And the food being offered to that pagan God, it doesn't really matter. It's not a real God. I'm just going to be sociable. But the question should be asked, what are you doing there? What picture does that paint for other people? They might think you sort of have a fondness for that particular false God. So we have to be careful what we do. We don't live in a vacuum. People are watching our lives. Um, since their conscience is weak, I'm at the end of verse 7. It's defiled, but food doesn't bring us any nearer to God. Verse 8. We're no worse if we do not eat, no better if we no better do not eat, yet no better if we do. Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Just because you know you have the freedom to do it, be sensitive to what other people think. Four, verse 10, someone with a weak conscience sees you, if someone sees you. With all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, there it is. Eating there. They have a banquet. Hey, I know the idol's not real. I'm not there to worship the idol. Yes, but what message does it send to somebody with a weak conscience? Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Remember Romans 14? For that person, if they think it's a sin, it is a sin for them. So, verse 11, this weak brother or sister, for whom... Christ died is destroyed by your, and he's being facetious, knowledge, so-called knowledge. Their faith could crumble. Their faith, they could have real problems because of their conscience. Uh, Romans 2 is all about conscience, by the way. Um, do we want to go there now? The word conscience uh, in the Greek is to know with the conscience is an internal court that God built, listen, into every human being. Christian, atheist, pagan, person on the fence. Everybody has a conscience, right and wrong. God built it that way. You can sear or burn your conscience by continuing to sin and ignoring it. Okay? The Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us is a louder, better conscience. Because you can learn to ignore your conscience. Um, you can learn to ignore your Bible and stay in infancy, so to speak. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Let's keep rolling. Verse 10, is that where we are? Yeah. They see you there. Their, their faith might really be damaged. Don't do it. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died. He's saying that's how valuable they are. Jesus thought them so valuable that he died for them. 
Why would you destroy them just because you have the knowledge that a certain thing isn't sin? Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Okay, we got to camp here for a minute too. Did you see that? I'm free. I know I can have a glass of wine. I'm going to do it. I don't care if Bill and Cindy come over to the house and they're offended or they're scandalized by it. That's the, the word, uh, what it really means in Greek. Scandalizo is what it is. Notice, number one, the person you're sinning against in verse 11, they're weak. Christ died for them. Translation, that's one of Jesus's kids. Be careful. Number two, verse 12, you sin against them. I'm just portraying my freedom. Now you're sinning against them. When David sinned, he said that he understood that all sin is ultimately, you can sin against somebody, but all sin is actually against God himself. Watch. So you're sinning against them. You're wounding their weak conscience. Why are you doing this, Christian? Is this showing love? You sin against, look at the end of verse 12, Christ. Why would you do that? Paul, when he was Saul and persecuting Christians, is met by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember that? He sees the risen Christ. That's why he's an apostle. And he's persecuting Christians. Christ's brothers and sisters, Christ, God's kids in a sense. And interestingly, Jesus says from that bright light after he's knocked Paul down, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I take it personally that you're persecuting Christians. Same way here. You sin against Christ. You sin against the, the weak believer. You wound their weak conscience. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I won't cause them to fall. I'm, I'm fine with it, he's saying. Whatever it takes, uh, going back to 1 Corinthians, and we're just about out of time. We got about five minutes. So the point is, don't flaunt your Christian freedom in such a way that you injure or weaken an already weak faith. Maybe the guy thinks, well, it's okay to go to this pagan temple. I think I'll go every week. And he falls back into idolatry, all because you flaunted your freedom, if you will. Um, okay, so these puffed up knowledge people are sending the wrong message. They're flirting with danger, basically. Um, he's kind of saying in verse 10, how smart are you if you're doing that? So uh, Paul wants us to understand that we are interconnected with other believers as well as being interconnected with God himself. Uh, look at verse 11, and we're almost done. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, I saw you. Verse 11. So this, uh, this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge, your so-called knowledge. Sin against your brothers, you wound their weak conscience. So he's, he's willing to forego some freedoms if it makes a brother's faith grow. Um, let's see, do we want to go there now? 
Um, no, not right now. Uh, I'm, I'm still reading notes, sorry. Um, obviously, the goal is to have the weaker brother grow in his faith to where he eventually has that freedom, but we don't want to damage their relationship with God in any way. Um, the words brother appear four times here. The words weaker or weak appear five times here. Um, let's see. Uh, causing somebody to st stumble. There it is, scandalizo. It, it really means the trigger on a trap. Why do that to somebody? Um, this is an answer to the Christian who says, I don't care what other people think. I answer to God alone. Now, there are, of course, are limits to this. If somebody thinks, let's just say, I have a weak faith and I think it's a sin to wear shoes. We ought to be the way God created us and go barefoot everywhere. Does that mean everybody in the church better take their shoes off? No. There comes a point of ridiculousness, right? Um, but that dinner party is a good analogy. Um, we're interconnected. We're parts of the same body, he's going to say later on in this book. Let's just introduce chapter nine and then we'll quit. Okay, so chapter nine is Paul's going to do something he's done earlier. He's going to defend his apostleship um, because they're wondering, is this guy really an apostle? After all, he ministers for free. He makes tents and some of the other apostles get paid. They get you know, a tithe or something, um, is he the real deal? They are um, not listening to him. They also love knowledge. And Paul admittedly says, I don't preach with eloquence. I preach Christ crucified, a very simple message. This doesn't connect with that intellectual Corinthian Greek audience. Um, so he also doesn't use the persuasive techniques I'll convince him with logic why Jesus is the son of God and why he died on the cross for our sins. He just preaches very simply, beautifully, the way his Lord did. Jesus preached the same way. So that's what the context is here. Um, he's going to have them let go of his their rights to do certain things. He's going to make the analogy just as he let go of his rights to take um a salary as a minister of the gospel since he planted that church. All right, we're out of time. Sorry about that. Thanks for listening. I know this is a little weird. I'm alone in a room talking. Most of you are asleep probably with your screens off, but it looks like some of you are awake. Anyway, I love you all. Hopefully the weather will cooperate and we'll meet in person. I'll email you and let you know, but let's close with prayer, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word. God, help us to remember that we don't live in a vacuum. We live with other believers. We don't want to make believers stumble, even though we may think we have faith enough and knowledge enough to do certain things. If it, we know that another brother doesn't believe that, then we ought not flaunt our knowledge and faith that way uh, so as to make them stumble. Thank you, God, that you have provided a way of escape from the world. Help us to not be so attached to the worldly stuff, our possessions, even our families, how important it is to be good parents, good sisters and brothers, good spouses. But even so, Lord, help us to remember the most important things are the eternal things. Help us to make you our priority, not number four on our top 10 list, but number one always, and to love you more than we love 
anything else in this world, Father. We can't wait to see you, but in the meantime, use us for your glory, and we pray you'd send Jesus back soon. Be with each of us this week, God. Thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you. You can't say hello to each other because you're on Zoom, but we'll see you next time. God bless.